You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Depending, gosh, hearing him speak very passionately and very driven behind his motives of why he wants to do it was very impressive in understanding where he comes from. He comes from a Facebook background and he comes from a White House background, policy-informing background, and he's written this book as a form of writing it to people to help educate them about a possible solution to curb the enthusiasm that is Silicon Valley on our, our media and on our culture. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you get a chance to talk to someone who's, one, been in the White House, um, who's been Forbes 30 under 30, and it just has, I think, such clarity on actually what's what's happening. And I think really the truth for me is the title of the book, this notion of kind of that there are actually terms of disservice. And what was really interesting is kind of the back and forth I think we had around kind of, you know, do one, do people care about their privacy? Two, is it the role of government to do anything ab- about that? And where is this actually all heading? Because I think, you know, for both um pat i think it's fair to say like both of us kind of really like discourse and i think what depanion really points out is that what's actually happening to our ability to actually speak to one another it feels like we're being pushed almost into two rival camps for sure and it's no more apparent than where depanion is based right now and that's the united states of america and it's very much similar happening here in australia and I think it's a, it's a great conversation to wrap your ears around because Australia is at the moment trying to come up with a way to curb the enthusiasm of big tech, but they're doing it in a certain way to... Uh, it's after debate to where we're heading, but I think it's really important to understand and question both sides of the fence of how to curb this enthusiasm because it has given rise, a lot of social media has given rise to small minority voices, but it's definitely put them in a pocket um, and speaking to other minorities of a similar a similar class or similar <laughs> similar angle. And I think that's where Dupanion's yeah. pointing us. But Australia at the current, as it stands, have put forward policy that will help our old big media get back and be big again. So we're at an interesting crossroads, and I think listening to people and understanding where they're coming from, such as Dependian Gosh, is you're doing a service not only to yourself but your community and, and hopefully Australia because more people engage in this conversation and understand the nuances of it, I think the better we will, we will be into the future. I don't know, that's big props for Dependian, but... Yeah, look, I mean, it was just an absolutely... (laughs) No, it's true, though. I mean, it's just, it's it's such a... Yeah, I mean, it was such a great conversation, and I think, you know, kind of the question that most intrigued me was the kind of the, I guess, the... Australia took on big tobacco and arguably is actually one in terms of kind of putting through um, plain packaging uh, legislation and get and to get kind of Dependian's take on kind of what the government can do um, about this and what we actually have to do as, as individuals was actually incredible. So, I mean, let's uh, give it a roll. Eh? Let's uh, let's get to the interview. Dependian Ghosh, PhD, is the co-director of the Digital Platforms and Democracy Project at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy. And he is a fellow at the Moshevar Ranhami Center for Business and Government at Harvard Kennedy School. He's also a lecturer at Harvard Law School. 
Depanion joins us today based off of his new book, which is entitled Terms of Disservice, How Silicon Valley is Destructive by Design. So his research and writing on digital policy has been um, widely circulated and has been cited in places from the New York Times all the way through to the Harvard Business Review, MSNBC, NPR, BBC, and now the Business as Usual podcast. Depanion, where do we find you this evening? And can you tell us what, um, ha- what and how kind of actually drove you to come up with the title of your book? Hi, guys. Uh, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Uh, and uh, very, very happy to, to be speaking with you both uh, today. You know, what, what motivated me to write this book was really, uh, uh, I would say, just a, just a combination of perspectives that I gained and um, uh, experiences that I had. Uh, first as an engineer, then as, as uh, someone who worked in, in government um, and, and specifically worked on thinking about uh, tech regulation and, and privacy more specifically, um, and, then, and then finally worked in the industry on, on privacy initiatives. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as those experiences came together, uh, the... Um, the, the last election uh, in the, the last presidential election in the U.S. happened, and, and that was 2016. Um, and we just saw an explosion of activity online and uh, a lot of it uh, nefarious. And it, it really drove me to uh, want to think more about where technology is in society today, what, what kind of impact it, it is having on uh, our economy, uh, our, our democracy even, um, and uh, what we need to do to, to kind of reshape technology uh, for the good and, and, and just suppress the bad. Um, and that's, that's what drove me to, to, to write uh, in terms of disservice uh, at, a, at a high principles level, I'd say. Mm. You did a very good job at that. And one thing that I really wanted to ask you was your opinion on why humans are so willing to trade our privacy for the utilitar- for the utility offered by large tech companies at a price supposedly free well yeah i mean that's the, that's the key word right patrick free um that's what mark zuckerberg and sheryl sandberg and and Sundar, Sundar pichai executives of facebook and google would uh, would lead you to believe that hey our services are free um, I think I think this this kind of uh, conception is a misconception. It's a it's a um, it's a very biased position, uh, and and here's why: uh, when we think about uh, the currency that's being extracted from us by a company like Facebook or Google uh, or Twitter or Snapchat. Uh, it's it's not really the dollars in our wallet. We're not we're not feeling our, our wallets getting any lighter. Uh, it's a very subtle form of novel virtual currency that's being extracted from us. That's a a combination of our data and our attention. And um, companies like Facebook wields that that combination of resources into a very novel currency that only they can understand fully, only they can render in in the market as something that is valuable because of the monopolies in the in the digital media sector that they've uh, that they've uh, created. Um, and uh, when when we think about uh, this issue, uh, privacy 
privacy is a very mushy concept. It means different things to everybody. Um, some people are concerned about privacy from the government. Some people are concerned about privacy from their neighbors. Some people are concerned about um, privacy online in the respect that uh, they, they just don't want their friends and, and strangers to know uh, know about their daily lives on Facebook. Uh, as I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really use, I have a Facebook account, but I don't really post much on it. Um, but I'm talking here about a very specific kind of privacy, um, which I'm particularly concerned about, and it's corporate surveillance. Um, and that's really the privacy that is, uh, being, being, uh, exploited, uh, really being, being violated, um, by this industry, uh, against us en masse, and, um, and which I'm particularly concerned about in this book. Sure, and you captured that once again very well. And I was wondering, on that note, it seems that we've hit this point, an inflection point, where society sort of has to choose um, whether it continues to go past inflection and possibly into in implosion or explosion um, of the coexistence of democracy and that of the unbridled neoliberal self-serving economics of of big corps. Um, I was wondering how you can implement public reform um, to sway that and if so how can you how can you do that when the power is with big corps um with the data that they have and the history that it's shown how they can sway public opinion um, in election, how would they not change that when radical policy is being put forward to the public? Uh, that's that's an uh, excellent question, Patrick, and, and uh, very eloquently put uh, some of the uh, concepts that, that you're, you're bringing to light. Um, right now, I don't think there's much that we can do. You know, a lot of this depends on political circumstances and the political circumstances right now in places like Australia and the United States and the United Kingdom and uh, the continent are defined by uh, in, in large part by the tech industry's uh, priorities, business priorities. Um, and those priorities are expressed by the industry through lobbying, through trade associations and, and through uh, various kinds of uh, policy efforts and, and communications efforts that we don't really know about um, and, and yet influence us and influence our policymakers and therefore influence our economy every day. Uh, we need the political circumstances to change and, and to look at a, a, an instance, uh, one example, uh, let's take the United States where there's a presidential election happening, but uh, under this presidency, there's been very little effort to do anything um, under President Trump. And, and I think there are complex reasons as to why that is the case. But at the end of the day, it's because doing nothing serves the president just as it serves uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, and his counterparts at other dominant digital platforms. We need, we, need, uh, we need regulatory and political circumstances to change. That change might be coming in November. Um, but, uh, but we'll have to wait and see, um, at a, at a more, uh, social level, you know, I think, I think of course, as individual consumers, we can, we can do more to, to try to understand what's happening as well. Um, and, 
it's through reading, it's through analysis, it's through trying to ha have a critical mind while uh, using these kinds of platforms that, that we can start to get there. Fantastic. And the kind of what goes behind all of this is, is the other um, thing. It would be great if you can actually take our listeners through. I mean, can you explain to us kind of your view on the ethics that actually go behind algorithms and really explain to the listeners um, three things if you can. The first is really what do they actually do in a, in a technical sense? And in your book, you really unpack this concept of the two machines in terms of actually how they um, work. One to kind of um, find the content that you're going to love and the other it is to actually kind of find the content that we're going to find too offensive perhaps. The second is actually kind of um, what do you believe this is all resulting in in terms of the, when we actually start to see algorithms making choices on our behalf? And the last part of my question is then actually looking at what do you believe, um, Dupont, we, we have to do about it? What, and what can we actually do about it as a society? Well, you know, Patrick, to address the, the first piece uh, first, what what do algorithms do? Or or to restate in in a, in a in another way, uh, what what is it that uh, uh, that a uh, that a company like Facebook does at the end of the day? What what uh, what? How do, how does it operate? Well, it uses algorithms um, in the following sense. You know, if if we look at the business model of a company like Facebook, which in the book I describe as being a part uh, and one company within the broader consumer internet industry, which is, uh, I, I describe in the book, is an industry that is focused on monetizing an ongoing dialogical relationship with an individual consumer or uh, many, many, in Facebook's case, 2 billion individual users. Monetizing that rela relationship by, by uh, focusing on attention maximization and data collection. How do, how, so how does a company like Facebook work underneath? Well, um, I'd say that there are three main pillars uh, to Facebook's core business model. As is the case for virtually any company in the consumer internet industry. The first is collecting lots and lots of personal and proprietary data uh, to the end of behavioral profiling so that these companies can, companies can start to understand based on collecting our location data and our on-platform engagement, our likes and, and dislikes and, and so on and so forth, our purchasing data, um, uh, our mobile ecosystem data. They can start to understand and unpack who we are, our individuality, our, our personality, um, our likes and preferences and beliefs and routines and behaviors. Uh, all toward the development of a behavioral profile. That's that's the first pillar. Second pillar uh, is is the uh, use of various kinds of algorithms to a profile us. B curate the content in our social feeds that these companies will predict uh, do predict uh, will engage us maximally. And three. Uh, uh, Essentially, targeting ads at us in uh, in in this context, and the third pillar is uh, this insane, almost crazy uh, uh, imperative toward platform growth, whereby these companies are so focused on getting as big as possible, as fast as possible, 
often, very oftentimes at, at the expense of broader policy considerations like privacy, like security, uh, like market competition. Um, if, if, you know, any of these companies that we might think about, Google search, Amazon e-commerce, Facebook and social media, Instagram, Messenger, uh, YouTube, any of these, uh, Twitter, Snapchat, any of these companies with varying success uh, is, is essentially operating by this, by this business model. Um, and that's how, uh, that, that, that is, it, we could also kind of step back and look at that as a monolithic uh, experience. Look at that as a monolithic machine. That is Facebook, you know, um, or Twitter or Google. It's a it's a set of servers out there around the world in various places, uh, with algorithms sitting on top of them um, and data collection capacities across the web, uh, which uh, which create these repositories back in the servers, uh, and and then. Uh, an engagement, uh, an application toward engagement of uh, the user population around the world. It's a, it's an algorithm. It's a machine. It's one uh, unified monolithic uh, thing, um, and it generates negative externalities. Uh, it generates, uh, it, it, it germinates uh, the the disinformation problem and the spread of misinformation and the spread of hate speech. And uh, the, the spread of algorithmic bias, uh, all of these negative externalities in the sense that these are, these are negative externalities in that they're not necessarily things that the companies would necessarily have wanted to host on their platforms, but are generated and pushed on society, thrust on society as a result of the business model um, without, without that intent from Facebook, but certainly uh, not, not with any incentive to contain that negative externality absent uh, governmental intervention. Um, and so they've created a secondary set of algorithms to try to contain those, uh, those, those negative externalities. You know, think about, for instance, Facebook's oversight board or the, uh, the tens of thousands of content moderators around the world that, that the company has hired along with other companies. Uh, or uh, the, its its election war room. These are all efforts to try to contain the, the negative externalities, uh, because society, because the public and politicians are saying, "Hey, Facebook. Hey, Google. Get it right. What are you doing?" Um, and they say, "Well, okay. We'll we'll create this secondary apparatus to try to contain the negative externalities." And yet, here's my point. They are creating this secondary apparatus, but that apparatus is just that, secondary. It's not, uh, it, it, it's not something that will defeat the core algorithm, the, the core business behind Facebook. Because, look, that is a dominant uh, platform across the world, across the Internet. It generates tremendously high profit margins, not just for Mark Zuckerberg and for his employees, but for their shareholders and for investors around the world. And there's a financial uh, apparatus and sector behind the company that's not, gonna, that's not gonna sit back and allow Mark Zuckerberg to cave, you know, to, to diminish his profit margins by 2% or 3% or 35% voluntarily. It's gonna take, 
it's going to take advocacy, activism, and governmental intervention to, to cause that kind of change. To, to tell Mark Zuckerberg that, look, no, you can't just create these secondary algorithms that will be reactive to the, to the core business. No, you need, to, you need to contain that core business itself. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organizations, and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact, and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organizations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them, and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. If you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. Yeah, and what's what's really um, you know astounding astounding about this is that it, it does feel that um, almost the algorithm is being answered by another algorithm. Whereas traditionally, really the the framework the government has taken, whether that's about the size, for example, in terms of kind of breaking up companies that actually become too big, or it's about kind of um, health concerns such as what's happened with plain packaging cigarettes here in Australia, is that really the the weapon of government is actually about legislation. And what I'm really interested in is your view on kind of what would be the legislative approach that actually has to be taken to help curve and counteract some of the power of these algorithms? Because in some ways, they're one of the most powerful forces we've ever seen in the history of humanity. And I'm not sure we actually understand um, that no one's actually setting the rules. The machine is. That's that's absolutely right. As, as you put earlier, they're making choices on our behalf. Uh, and those choices are not in our interest. Those choices are in their interest. Those choices, that's to say, what, are, what, what we're seeing at the top of our newsfeed, what we're seeing at the top of our Twitter feed, what we're seeing through our YouTube recommendation engine, uh, those choices that the algorithms are making are not designed to, uh, to help us become better people or help us learn more. No, those those. The, 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 the optimization scheme that goes into those algorithms is to keep us watching. Now, sometimes keeping us watching and helping us learn are aligned, but very often and, and most of the time, I would even say, they're not. Um, the, the, the imperative for these companies and for the broader industry is to engage. And, and they are making those choices on our behalf. And as such, creating and perpetuating bias, historical bias, media bias, it's, it's just affecting the entire world. We, we don't see what we want to see. We see what they want us to see. So what do we do about this? You know, I, I think, I think um, on algorithms specifically, we need better transparency. We need, you know, I mentioned three areas uh, where these companies uh, develop algorithms and uh, and and try to uh, try, try to influence us essentially manipulate our media experience to keep us engaged so that they can uh, generate more ad space targeted ad space and and enable facilitate the, the targeting of ads by major brands and, and small brands at us um, 
those three areas, again, profiling, uh, content curation, and ad targeting. That's to say there are machine learning models that are designed to understand who we are based on the data that they've got, uh, understand and, and uh, assert what we want to see uh, or what they think we want to see to keep us engaged, uh, and, and finally, to uh, target ads at us. There's a, there's a whole ad optimization uh, side to uh, Google or a Facebook whereby they take the preferences of, of marketers like Chanel and Nike and, uh, you know, the, the Australian uh, Rules Football League, and, and they, they take those targeting preferences and, uh, and enable the targeting of ads through their through their uh, through their platform, um, they're making choices on our behalf through these algorithms, as as you put it. Uh, what do we do? We need better transparency into into the choices that they're making. We we need to understand what data it is upon which they're making these decisions, uh, what decisions they are making. Um, uh, to to be more specific, let's let's take just for example the ad targeting uh, category where let's say, um, you know, uh, uh, the Red Bull Formula One team uh, wants to figure out who to target in Australia, you know, who will be a fan of, uh, of Daniel Ricciardo uh, and, and, and potentially uh, start watching more races in Australia. How, how do we, the Red Bull racing team, get more fans in Australia? Well, um, the the way that you the, the the way that you might do that as Red Bull is share with Facebook, you know, the information that you've got on uh, on your your viewers. Maybe you've got some information, some data from the F1. Maybe you got some data from Red Bull. Maybe you got some data from from other brands that are your corporate sponsors and, and partners. Um, and you have made some determination as to various segments uh, across population segments across Australia that that will be uh, likely to, to follow your team and, and start watching your team's races uh, and buy your drinks and, and so on and so forth. Um, you give all that information to Facebook and then Facebook says, okay, we've got this information. We've also got proprietary information, uh, including the personal data of every Australian on Facebook and Instagram and, and Messenger and, and WhatsApp. Uh, and now what we're going to do is, is, uh, is uh, figure out exactly what content, you know, Red Bull might have different kinds of ad campaigns, which, which ad campaigns should go to which segments of the Australian population. And that's, that's a form of manipulation. You know, why, why should Facebook be making those choices on our behalf uh, as to, as to, who sees what? No, I mean that—that that is the, exactly the sort of thing that uh, that leads to socioeconomic bias, that leads to media bias, that leads to certain people seeing certain opportunities and other people being left behind, because Facebook is making the decision that you know what people who are interested in this team will, will likely be wealthier, will likely be from certain neighborhoods. Let's let's try to target those neighborhoods. Let's try to target those kinds of people. And then other people in Australia 
we'll never get a chance to follow Red Bull. We'll never get a taste of that part of culture. We'll never uh, be have a chance to be a Formula One driver someday because they admire Daniel Ricciardo. And and obviously that's a that's a very kitschy example. But this happens constantly, all the time, around us, everywhere, with every single brand, with every every size of company. Uh, and, and it's Facebook, Google, and Google that are facilitating this bias. And I think you've hit um, on a, a serious um, point there, and that's heading down that bubble sphere and, and then leading us into talking about the social contract that individuals have with their lived communities. And, and here we always like to focus on that. But do you feel like the hand of goodness is, is pushing us towards um, solving smaller problems for smaller communities and making bigger problems for the larger society as a whole? We're just hearing our own truths echoed back to us. Um, is there still room for, for true discourse to happen within society or are we just talking into the void and, and hearing our own voice back? Uh, what a what a great question, and uh, I I don't know I, I don't I don't know the answer to that, but but I think I think you're onto something that that uh, we are we are living living certainly in a very polarized world. Uh, that's true politically in many ways in Australia, in India, in in the United States, in the United Kingdom, uh, in in many parts of the world uh, today, and. Um, I, I don't. I don't know why. I think. I think much of it is because of how the economy has developed over the past thirty years, and much of it is because of how the internet has uh, changed society and, and the way that we think in many ways. Uh, and and yes, you know, in in many cases we're talking into the void, and in many cases we're we're actually talking to a very specific community. Um, and it, it, it really depends on the context because the consumer internet now, if, if we're talking about talking into the void in the digital context, is really uh, a, an instantiation of what the media environment can be. It is, not, um, it is not what the ideal media environment should look like. Uh, it is uh, the tech company's image of what they want. Uh, it, it is, um, it's something that is a commercial creation. It's, it's, it's something that serves their profit interest. And this is where I think we need to start thinking more about, as, as you, as you mentioned, a social contract, a, a renegotiation of the way that the media ecosystem should work, uh, a rebalancing of the economic power behind media, uh, which by the way, I mentioned media. What I'm what what I mean by this is thought, intellectual capacity, our our intellectual output and our intellectual experience, our education and our understanding of the world around us. That is the media. Um, we we need a more public oriented uh, instantiation of the media environment. Not not a uh, not a corporatized one. Not one that serves the profit interest of one one company or three companies. Uh, we we what we require is a more let's say uh, for sake of argument German approach to uh, to media regulation, um, whereby 
whereby we have uh, much better capacity to to uh, through regulatory authority to to design and shape uh, the media in such way that uh, that will serve de- our democratic interest. And you know, I think much of this is is precisely where for many regulators around the world, including, for instance, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, uh, is heading are, are heading. Um, you know, to to start thinking very hard about how Facebook has a monopoly in social media. And Google has a monopoly in, in, in search and online video. And Amazon has its monopolies. And uh, we need to, uh, we need to, if, if, if we're in this state in perpetuity or, or near perpetuity where, uh, whereby these companies have monopolies and, and there's nothing else that we could see toppling their, their monopoly power, then, then we need to figure out a way to redistribute the wealth that they're extracting from the rest of society and, and give it back to the rest of society. Um, and that's, that's a big task, but I, I, think that, I, I think that we can craft uh, various mechanisms to, to get there. Great. And I mean, do you, do you think, you know, you, you're starting to hint the government is starting, starting to look at this, but do you genuinely think that, they, that they're looking for change? Like, are they really, you know, if you were a betting man, I mean, where, where would you say we're actually heading? Are we heading more towards this kind of dystopian future, which feels that in some ways it's becoming more and more as you're talking about this polarized world where you're either in one camp or you're in the other? Or is it more likely that government is actually going to start to fight back and actually kind of start to look for a renewal of democracy? I mean, I think what we often ponder um, between Patrick and I is really this kind of this thing between, I mean, for example, social media arguably got the last two uh, U.S. presidents elected, whether that was Obama or whether that was Trump. And it was, you know, one message was about kind of, um, you know, if this was a Star Wars movie, the Obama message was very much the message of hope, whereas the Trump message is very much the message of darkness, so to speak. And what we're interested in is really that where do you think this will actually lead? So do you think the governments are really, really going to push hard enough to actually enact the change that is required? Yeah, you know, uh, Joe, you're, you're very eloquent uh, in, in suggesting exactly what you did about uh, Trump and Obama for what it's worth. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they've both taken advantage of this whole circumstance that we that we have in the, in, in the digital media today. And the candidates today are both poised, position, well positioned to take advantage of it as, as well in, in the U.S. Uh, context. Um, but certainly, you know, Obama was this this force representing change and hope. Uh, Trump, as we have seen in the past few days uh, with the Republican National Convention, has been trying to play up the, the, this this fear mongering, um, and and both are both are. Uh, both both have used social media uh, to their to their to their ends. Um, it is the only way to go now because of the because of the force of the internet today. Um, it, you know, I, I think I think when we think more more specifically about uh, whether government is is well positioned to do anything, you know, uh, Joe, I, I think. Uh, I think it depends. It depends on which jur- jurisdiction we look at. Um, there, there's obviously been a lot that's happened in in France and Germany and the broader uh, through the broader U- European Commission, um, and yet it has it has some 
the, the, the commission's policies and regulatory stances have uh, definitely moved the ball forward, but could, could, could bet. Yeah. You know, I think that your commission could benefit from, from more policy as well, from, from more uh, reform around the way that it, it uh, advances policy against or in, uh, in, with respect to uh, Silicon Valley. Um, in the U.S., sure, President Trump isn't, isn't very well positioned to, uh, to do anything about tech, and, and that serves, uh, I think, in, in large part Republicans in, in the United States. Uh, but um, I think I think Democrats have been quite solid about the uh, about the contention that we need to do something. We, being the public, need to we need to do something about this industry. Um, and uh, we've seen things like the the Data Broker Transparency Act and the Honest Ads Act, which have not uh, moved forward really because it it has only been one party behind. Those efforts. Now, if political circumstances change in November, which uh, it seems they're very likely to, um, that that you know the U.S. jurisdiction might flip, uh, and and there might be serious rigor uh, against uh, against the tech industry. Um, the U.K. provides another example. You know, um, the Competition Markets Authority just released a major report. Uh, about uh, essentially how these companies, these companies being uh, Facebook and Google and, and certain others, uh, are extraordinarily powerful, and that we, the the UK, uh, the the people of the United Kingdom and and uh, the government, need a digital market unit, uh, a a new sort of regulatory authority that is uh, resourced and positioned. Uh, and and has the political will to uh, that is to say is, is totally independent of of uh, politics to analyze examine investigate the tech industry and advance regulatory policy uh, in response to the tech industry. For sure. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I think that's a great note to, to end on. You've given us so much and great insight in, into the, the deep forest that you've been in. And I think you've managed to put us on the map and give a lot of people a clear idea of, of the problems we face and possible solutions that we can come up with with the right forward movement. So thank you. I mean, it's such a, I think you make such a compelling argument about that, we, you know, we kind of, we have to look at this through two lenses. One is the notion of the com- the common good and actually how do we actually maintain our ability to actually talk to one another and be able to work through it. But I think equally, Deepan, you kind of make this argument, I think, throughout the book, the terms of disservice, how Silicon Valley is destructed by design, this concept of also that it's also about our commonwealth. So the fact that these algorithms are also value extraction machines. And, you know, for us to actually be able to maintain a level of, of society, we also need, you know, it's not free. Um, they, they they may be making a significant amount of profit on their end, but government actually has to look at how that actually gets redistributed to really allow, I think, society to kind of actually maintain itself. And, uh, you know, you put that um, so well throughout the book. So we really, really thank you for taking time to join us this morning. Of course, uh, thank you guys. Uh, I, I really appreciate being with you, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure uh, having such a such a deep discussion on these issues with you. 
thank you for listening to BAU, Business as Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's B-A-U-P-O-D-C-O.